Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 21 of Trail Society brought to you by Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And we're so excited to talk about a really big topic today, something we've been alluding about. You guys have asked us many questions about it. Menstruation, menstrual cycle, your period. We're going to get into it. But first, we're going to start with some races, some news, and then we'll really kind of dive into the meat and potatoes, which is what I'm going to forever call the bulky part of our of our podcast. I almost said of our period, which is different. <laughs> um, period on the brain here. Okay, so... Last time we all talked, I talked about Jackie going after the world record for the most consecutive marathons running in a row. Well, by the time this is out, this is old, old news, but I think it's so exciting. And I want to continue to like just yell about her as much as possible. Jackie Hunt Brosman, Brosma um, officially ran 104 marathons. She decided to end April with the marathon, woke up, said, why not just end the month with one more marathon? So it is official. She has run 104 marathons in a row, all while being an amputee. She lost her, um, she lost one of her lower legs to cancer as a 26 year old. Um, and I just think it's phenomenally inspirational. It sheds so much light on adaptive athletes and she did so while raising money. Um, so set a Guinness world record while raising money. I think the total amount came out to like $198,000, um, for amputee blade runners, which will, which will provide, um, prosthetics for, um, other amputees, super, super cool. Those are very expensive and they're very rarely covered by insurance. Um, and I believe 104 K I saw this on the gist, um, came from RX bar. So that's really cool. So they must've matched a fundraising goal. So very, very cool. Um, did anyone follow along with the, the East coast racing that happened over the weekend. Did you guys see that from Ellie? Ellie Pell did a bunch of coverage on Twitter. It was really, really great. I didn't, but I did want to say one thing. Um, one of our last episodes was with Patrick Presgrove and he knows Jackie Hunt Brosmara really well. And so he was really stoked for her on that 104th day of running. And he also is a big advocate for the amputee blade runners. And so a little shout out to Patrick there too, because they're all working for such a great cause. And so it's really, I'm really grateful to have gotten to know him and to now follow their all journeys. Yep. And we've been getting some shout outs in our DMs from um, folks associated with different adaptive organizations. And so it's just really cool to see races, particularly the marathon, right? Jackie ran the, I think, I don't know if Patrick was out there um, for it, but for Boston, they had like a new adaptive class this year, um, which was really cool. They got their own corral, their own start. Um, their own category, their own prize money, like very, very cool to see races do that. And I hope that we see more of that on the trail. Once again, just like lowering that barrier to entry by saying, we have a class for you. Not like, Hey, ask us if you need anything like to be like, just tell them that we have what you need type of situation. So very cool. Um, Keely, you lived out East. You grew up out East. I lived out East for a while. So the East coast, it's got some gnarly, gnarly trails. Um, I believe this was USA track and field trail marathon championships. The top mm -hmm. male and top female got a place on the, what is now the world mountain and trail running championships. It's been delayed like two years with COVID and associated uh, pandemic kind of continuation. Um, it will be officially happening, I believe in November of this year in Thailand. 
Um, and it's a combination of what used to be the mountain running champs. So kind of shorter distance verdi stuff with um, what, what was IAU trail running world champs. So some longer stuff. So they're combining kind of all those races into one event. So very cool to have basically like your mountain running or kind of VK style stuff, your short, your short trail marathon, short in quotes there, trail marathon stuff. And then like a longer ultra, which will probably either be like a 50 K or an 80 K, um, is my guess. So very, very cool. Max King edged, edged David hedges. I want to say that right. He edged hedges. Um, apparently they were duking it out for like the last two miles. Um, Max took it by only six seconds over David. They were both under David's old course record on the course. Um, very, very cool. And then Elliot Carden finished third and he wasn't that far back from them either. Um, Michelle Merlis won and set the course record. I think she broke her own course record on the course. This was all at the breakneck, um, point trail marathon, which I believe is a red newt racing event. So very cool. Um, Christina Randrup, who's a Bay area gal who lives in Seattle was second. Um, and, uh, Nora, uh, Jodry, I don't know if I said your name right at all was third. Um, so really kind of cool to have some East coast love and to get some more people named to that U S trail team. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as Annie Hughes crossed the finish line at Coconut 250, third overall, I was like, we have to, we have to do this. We have to bring, bring this up. So did you watch Coconut at all, Keely? I did a little bit. Yeah. But definitely not as in-depthly as probably you did, but yeah, it's hard to watch. It's like three, four, yeah. <laughs> five days of running. Um, but I got to watch Annie destroy at Moab 240 and she did the exact same thing here at Cocodona. Um, kind of ran her, she led her and Jason Coop, you know, were leading the race together for most of the first and into the second day. So it was very cool to see Annie run her own race and ultimately finish third overall. Um, the men's race was, um, won by Joe Stringbean. Um, you probably know him from setting long trail records, very cool performance, but much faster than last year, but there were some course changes this year that I think was part of that. Mike McKnight moved up all, all race to finish second. Second female was Lauren Jones, who was 10th overall. Um, and third female, I'll give her a shout out to um, Sarah. I'm going to butcher your last name. Sarah Ostawazowski. Pretty close. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's close. an ex Portland gal. So I yeah. love her. So and she moved up from stoked to see her crushing it. Yeah. And she was fifth last year. So it's her second time running yep. Kona, um, and finished third this year. So that, that, that was very cool to see her come back because I feel like coming back to a race like this has to be a little bit like, intimidating too, just because who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but very big kudos to anyone who gets on the start line for Coconut 250, let alone finishes it because that's a, that is a beast of a race. We also wanted to give a shout out to Camille Heron. She took the course record on the women's side and the win overall at strolling gym. Um, it's a old classic us road ultra. It's about 40 miles long. Um, she ran a four forty four oh one, um, and beat an old record, like a, a record from 2011, which is, that's, a, that's a pretty like longstanding record in this sport at this point. Yeah. I mean, she was averaging sub seven minute pace for the 40 miles. Um, and it, apparently it has around 2000 feet, a little under 2000 feet of climbing. Um, it's all mostly roads, but they're like pretty pretty bumpy roads, I guess. And the, the climbing is like super jagged. So it, it kind of packs a good punch, even though it doesn't sound like a lot on paper. 
Um, so yeah, pretty cool that she, she won. And then I remember her Instagram post was pretty cool. She was talking about how she won into the course record and how Leah Thorvilson, who is the woman who used to have the course record was her inspiration to getting into ultras. Um, when she saw her get that course record in 2011. So pretty cool that she could come back, you know, 12 years later, 11 years later and, and beat that. Um, but she also said that she wasn't feeling super motivated during the race. Um, and felt like she kind of let off the gas a little bit towards that, like two thirds part of the course. And then heard that, uh, Harvey Lewis was only like four or five minutes back. So she said she felt like she had to put the hammer down for those last miles to make sure she secured the win. So I'm glad she felt like she got her little competitive fire back there. Yeah. And Harvey Lewis is, he had a great 2021 running. Um, he's, he's, I've, I feel like Harvey is quite accomplished and oftentimes like forgotten about a little bit. He's kind of flies under the radar somehow. So it was very cool to see him finish a close second. Um, yeah, I have never, I have no desire to run a road ultra like that, but I am always floored by the performances that come out of them. And then we wanted to give a shout out because we miss a lot of East coast races, but I had an athlete in hellbender. Um, and I know how gnarly it was. Like it, the weather was terrible. That course has like, it's really, really technical. Um, they had horrendous weather this year, maybe yet again. Um, and Marissa, uh, Romeo won the women's race and she actually finished third overall. So I want to give a shout out to Marissa, um, because that is, that's not an easy race. Um, and to crash the men's podium in it is, was very, very cool to see. Yeah. And I think she ran like the second fastest time for females on the course. So yeah. she ran yes. a smoking fast time, even though the conditions did not sound very fun. Yeah. It's, it was, it sounded absolutely horrible out there. So big shout out to Marissa. Um, that's a stellar performance at Hellbender. Yeah. And, um, what's really cool about the Hellbender 100 in case you guys forget is that they have a female male and transgender non-binary registration policy. So they actually, because they have the race limited to 150 participants, um, they actually have two registration pages, um, so that they can allow females to register and males to register. Um, and then they also have an acceptance policy for people who submit applications as transgender and non-binary runners too. So, um, they're trying to increase the, the, the like diversity of their applicant pool, which is pretty cool. That is so, so cool. I'd forgotten. I know, I know they did gender kind of gender equal entry. Um, so thanks big, big, extra big shout out to Hellbender, to those race directors who, for making that happen. The other two things I included are kind of weird mm-hmm. and I'm happy to share them, but okay. <laughs> UK listeners, we have, I know we have UK listeners. So this came onto my radar because of the name. There was a, a hundred K in the UK recently. This just like when this comes out, it'll be like two weeks ago. Um, it's an old race, 58 years old. It's called the Felsman. It's got 11,000 feet of climbing. Um, names familiar to many trail runners, Ole Johnson and Damian Hall tied. They actually, it was a, a hand holding tie, which I don't think either one of them were stoked on, but they did it and they, <laughs> they loved it, but not that far back from the men's winners was Fiona Pascal. Okay. Ring any bells, Beth Pascal. Will someone let us know if they're related? I know that not all Pascals have to be related, but will someone, will someone tell me? Slide into my DMs. Let me know if Fiona Pascal is in fact a relation to Beth Pascal, because that's terrifying. So she was three hours ahead of the next woman. She was only like 40 minutes back of the men's winner over a hundred K distance. Like, and, and Damien Hall, I don't know, um, Ole Johnson very well, but I, Damien Hall's name is super familiar to many of us. 
being only 40 minutes back from Damien Hall is a good place to be. So someone let us know if there's another scary Pascal sister or cousin in the world that we should all be keeping our eyes on. Um, and then the last bit of running. Speaking of speaking of Beth Pascal, she yeah. posted on Instagram today about her decision to not race Western, Western States this year. And I just think it was a really good post because she basically was saying that this race has meant a lot to her and she's on her road to recovery. Um, she realized that running hundred miles is not a good idea, especially in as little time of two months. Um, but that she is going to stick to later races in the summer and to honor her body and to not try to push for Western States. So big kudos to Beth Pascal for not coming to Western state this year, even though I would love to have had her back. Uh, it sounds like it's better for her to not. And so I love when people are willing to admit that, even though it's probably so hard and be public about it too. Right. A lot of us, when you get injured, you kind of shy away from, from being with your community and talking about what's going on. So Beth has been relatively public. I feel like with a lot of the injury stuff she's been dealing with. And so it's been, she reached out after Madeira being like, it was cool to follow, like that you're back on a start line. Like this, this gives me hope. Like, thank you. So Beth, you'll be back and faster than ever. And as terrifying as <laughs> Fiona, who may or may not be related to you. Um, and then the last, the last little news shout out that I wanted to give was to, um, a runner getting ready to make her Western States debut UTMB runner up Cami Brujas. Um, she won a 51 K over the weekend. Looks like she's running really well. Um, she's one of the, she's one of the, she got a golden ticket into Western States at UTMB. Um, you know, I'm just really curious to see her mix it up in this field. So, um, Cami Brujas will be one of the international runners joining a stateside for that at the end of June. And I'm waiting with bated breath to see how that pans out. So good job, Cammy. <laughs> news. And this is where I turn it over to, to Keely because she's our news goddess. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a goddess, but I'll take it. Um, so I think we've all been seeing some news around, or at least a couple months ago, we saw a lot of news around some Title IX inequalities in the NCAA. Um, and so I started going down a rabbit hole into this because it all kind of started um, from a tweet from one of the standouts at University of Oregon during March Madness, um, showing a picture of the female versus male weight rooms. And for those of you watching this on YouTube, you will see a nice picture come up showing you this tweet where you see a lovely weight room on the top part that has, you know, hex bars and deadlift bars and all sorts of plates and all sorts of stuff. And then there's a there's a picture below that shows the women's lifting gym and it is a foldable table with yoga mats on top and a small little measly rack of handheld weights. And that is all. Um, and so this was just one of many things that women participating in March Madness or in the women's basketball tournament were complaining of being different from the men's tournament. Um, some of the other things were around their food and their compensation for food. Um, and a lot of different things that really just didn't sound that great. One of them being COVID testing parameter or COVID testing policies and all that. So again, a lot of, um, news around women speaking out about the inequalities during this tournament. I'm sure a lot of you know what title nine is, but I definitely didn't know the full backstory on it. So if we go back in time before the 1970s, sport used to be considered a play for play's sake for women. So there were no women's sport leagues really. 
and there were no sports teams at colleges. So females were allowed to play against one another during like a play time that was scheduled by the universities, um, but there were no organized leagues. And so in 1972, Title IX changed that as part of one of the education amendments um, and was signed into law in June. And it basically stated that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subject to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. The impact of Title IX really spread beyond college sports, um, and it started increasing the number of women participating in sports across all levels, right? There was a lot more high school girls participating in sports, there were then more women who eventually got to the Olympics. And so it did a lot of really good things for sports. And it, and it kind of leveled the playing field for universities as well, where they started increasing the number of sports teams for females to a point where we're now um, women making up 44% of college athletics. So it's really been monumental for the increase of females participating in sport. But there, are, there is like a little gray area in it because I was thinking, well, if they've passed this amendment, why can the NCAA market and and basically treat female basketball players different than the male basketball players participating in the same tournament. Um, and it seems that the NCAA has fought against this because they're not technically receiving money from the federal government. I think that is the loophole that the NCAA is finding. And the NCAA and- loves loopholes. <laughs> they love a good loophole. So it's not that surprising that they're the first ones to kind of like be like, oops, sorry, gray zone. We're, you're like, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't tell us what to do. Yeah. It's upsetting. Yeah. So, I mean, basically just looking into this year, it, it was interesting how the numbers kind of panned out because they're still putting a lot more money into the marketing of the men's basketball tournament um, and calling it the March Madness tournament. Um, and they're putting about 3% of the funding into the women's tournament. And up until this year, they didn't call the women's tournament March Madness, even though it was the exact same tournament happening at the exact same time. Um, and so, again, ju- there's just these discrepancies. And obviously, there's arguments from both sides saying that, you know, women shouldn't get as much funding because they don't draw as much of an audience and all these things. But we have that to remember wasn't that. true this year. Exactly. Like, women's yep. coverage was huge. Like people mm-hmm. tuned in for it. So. Yeah. And if you look back to when March Madness started, it was back in the, or the late 90s. Nobody really watched men's basketball in college. And so there was this huge surplus of funding that went into making the March Madness this crazy hyped up event so that it did draw all these viewers. And so the question that I have for you guys is like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Are we supposed to assume that we have to play to a level that gets us recognized, even if we're not televised? Or do we need someone to take a chance on us and put funding in so that we can televise to more audiences so that we can actually gain momentum and gain viewership that way, right? Because in my mind, people are trying to say we're supposed to build that up on our own. But if you look back, historically, no sport has done that. It's always been someone taking a leap of faith on that sport, dumping money in to increase the amount of exposure they get. And that's how they kind of continually increase viewership. And we see right. this in road cycling and, and on the mountain bike and in gravel cycling. We see this in trail running, right? It's it's the sponsorship dollars that go to the athletes. And companies have notoriously, I mean, there are there are many, many women on the like in the cycling world who it's like, okay, you got you got your bike, right? Like they, they're gonna give you a bike. And it's like, well, you can't make a living with a free bike, right? You can't pay rent with a free bike. You can't pay rent with 
you know, free nutrition product. Like you, mm-hmm. there's, and they think that that's enough. It kind of makes the women's events feel like, you know, quote unquote, like, well, it's the exhibition event. And you're like, no, it's, it's, it's still the event. It's one of the two events. And I think that, I think it's really, I don't think you can anticipate women's fields to grow in depth and strength and talent without put like, without taking a chance and putting money into it because mm-hmm. you don't have you that. Okay. So this is a great, like, I don't know. I look at in particular, like women's road cycling, cycling notoriously things have changed are changing are changing there, but there are so many women, like you see it in the Olympics every four years where it's like this woman was a fight, like was worked in finance until 2012. And then she decided to pick up cycling and now she's the Olympic gold medalist. It's like, yeah, okay. There are no <laughs> men in that race who have that story. And it's because women have had to be successful and financially independent enough in order to take up this, you know, quote unquote hobby that then earned them an Olympic medal. Right. Yeah. Like that's really backwards. And it's not like that woman, like there's many stories like that. It's not like that woman just picked up cycling and then was all of a sudden really good. She was probably working full time and doing all of this other stuff. Like many professional women actually in trail running do. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm of the belief, like the latter thing that Keely was saying is that I think people need to take a chance on it. There's really, I mean, title nine, I think proves that in general, because there was no funding. There's, there was really no like mandate to actually take this sport seriously until there was some sort of law to say, okay, we need to pay attention to this now. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember like women weren't allowed to run the marathon in the Olympics until, you know, around this time it's, there was one stat that stood out to me in the article that you sent over Keely in which it said the number of high school girls participating in sports grew 990% from 1971 to 2003. Okay. And that's like our parents generation. Right. Right. Like it's, and like I, my mom's got, my mom was a phenomenal runner in, in high school. And it's like, she was like, you know, her parents were like, I don't know what you want. You want to run track? Like what? Like, okay, get on a bus, be safe, I guess. But it's like, it wasn't, it wasn't a sport. It wasn't something for her to pursue. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, title nine, like, I don't know, the NCAA is finding loopholes, but I think that this, like this whole narrative goes beyond the NCAA and we can pull it into the world of trail running and ultra running, for example, in, in the same way of like, it's, it's why I fight on every single live broadcast, you know, table that I get put at to make sure we have equal coverage of the men's race and the women's race to make sure they've allocated the appropriate number of cameras to both races. Because all of a sudden when you've allocated three cameras to the men's race and one camera to the women's race, yeah, you're, you're going to miss the women's race. So I think it's, you know, it's those little steps that all of a sudden do hopefully drive sponsorship dollars and then companies just being, I don't know, better and but making then, sure that they pay people appropriately. Yeah. And also with that, Corinne, it's like, I mean, this is happening in our sport right now. I mean, I remember TDS 2019 was the first year they had three dedicated cameramen to the women's race. And the women's race is very exciting. And so, and just, you know, just as exciting if not more in my opinion than the men's race but like you know this is this is what i think is really this is what forcing i think money and support and taking a chance on women's sports it's proving that actually it is interesting it is competitive it's not just play for play sake like there's fierce competitors and people need to see that in order to believe it and then continuing investing in it instead of just kind of 
doing it for fun. Like really guys, like, am I just going to go out and do this? Like, you know, four hour run for fun, like part of it. Yes. But like, also like you have bigger goals. Like we want to do these things, not just do it for like kicks, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Totally. And I think one thing that came out of this article that gives me hope is that all of the sponsors that sponsored the NCAA were outraged and they wanted to know where their dollars went and wondered why it wasn't split 50-50. So some of the food sponsors were wondering why the packages were not distributed the same for the men and the women. There was a lot of sponsors reaching out, wanting to send Uber Eats gift cards. There was all sorts of stuff. So I think that is kind of showing itself in trail running as well, where I think we are slowly seeing more sponsors being willing to diversify their team roster and not have it fully fully stacked with males and have more women being able to, to pursue these sports full time. And I think kind of on that note, there was one other line that came out over the past couple of weeks around female focused um, sports media. Um, And it is basically a new initiative by Billie Jean King. Our hero. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Our our queen. And she is joined with the LA Dodgers and Elysian Park and RGA Ventures, who is a creative actually based out of Portland here, to start a Trailblazers venture studio um, that has an initiative to fund the growth of women's sports. And so they're kind of open to resumes right now um, from startups in media and storytelling around female athletics. Um, And they plan to provide both funding and guidance to these startups through like a 12-week program where they'll introduce them to executives and creatives in the space to help guide their their processes. And um, yeah, they're they're doing this so that they can kind of help increase the coverage of women's sports and just kind of elevate these people who maybe need a little bit of help. So pretty exciting. And they're like putting some serious money behind it, like thousands, millions I think like the top, the top was like $2 million or something. So they, they have some serious funding behind this. And I think they're going to try to take six to eight startups into that initial kind of 12 week cohort. So a super cool opportunity. If you happen to be in that space, get after it. It's like that to me, was like very, very exciting to see. Yeah. We're in exciting times right now for female sports. So very cool. (laughs) We're in a, yeah, we'll continue to ride that wave. I don't know. I feel like the last like year and a half, two years has been like this really big momentum surge, at least in, in the media that I'm surrounded with within the trail running community, trail and ultra running community. Like the time and time again, the story has been like, oh, the women's race. The story is the women's race. Like again. And I, I want, it's like, yeah, you know, like welcome. We're here. Like get like get on board type of thing. So <laughs> I don't know. We're very, we'll, we'll keep tooting our own horns, I guess. Um, but I think we're ready. We're ready to meet and potatoes it. Um, but can I add something? I don't want to like put a damper on it, but I was just looking for the stats on this thing, but like, just to give you think like, this is great. You're right. And like the story is the, I think the women's race, but like, I was just reading this thing in that, in the article Keely said, and division one athletic departments, they only devote 36% of their budget to women's sports. So this adds up to an extra $133 million each year for men's sports compared to women's sports. This is at division one athletics alone. So ladies, we have some work to do. Like that 2 million number seems like a lot, but uh, compared to 133 million, let's, (laughs) let's get some, let's get some excitement out there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And those are, those are obviously, those are different pockets. Those are different pockets, different money, but yeah, I think, I think people are, are trying to figure out their best ways to create that impact. So cool initiatives coming out of it. I mean, akin to the, like the, the sports bra 
that we brought up a <laughs> yeah. number of weeks ago, right? Like mm-hmm. they're devoted to showing women's women's sporting events, whatever women's sporting event is on, it's going to be on in the bar. And so I think it's like, it's those grassroots things in your local community and the, and then in your national community, like your state community, your national community. Like, I think we are going to see, you know, change makers like stepping up, which is, I think, you know, what, what we're trying to do too, in our own mm-hmm. little, our own little way. Um, okay. Now we're going to meet and potato set. So as I alluded to earlier, menstruation, um, we've talked about it in various ways over the course of, I don't know, months now. And we said, Hey, 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 we're gonna, we're going to dedicate some time to this. And, and we are ready now to dedicate some time to this topic. Um, I think many of our next episodes are going to be themed along kind of the women's health spectrum, but it's not just for women, right? If you have someone in your life who menstruates, this is good information for you too. Um, so I think before we get too heavy into the science side of, of the whole thing, of periods, of hormones, of the ups and the downs of the whole thing, I just wanted to, wanted to, you, you like to hear both of your inputs, your thoughts on like, why, why is this topic? Why is talking about menstruation? And I'm like shaking my hands violently under the table, apparently. Um, why is it important to talk about menstruation? I think the biggest one that comes to mind right away is that it's never associated with anything positive. And I think it's always associated with negatives. And so I think it's really important to start talking about it so that every girl out there knows that it's actually something that's really, really important. And it's something that should be celebrated and not hidden behind closed doors and never talked about. It needs to be talked about to start destigmatizing it and, and really just bring it into the light so people can appreciate what their bodies do. Uh- it's, it's like, exactly. Like it's normal. Um, like as even a young adult, uh, one of the first experiences that I had that I was like, wow, we really need to talk about this as if it's just, it's, it's just normal. It's just part of like who we are. Um, I was running across Haiti and, um, basically there's this, like half of the population like kind of drops out of school and the half of that population is actually women because what happens is they start their period. They don't really, they don't talk about it. They don't really know um, what's going on. And then, you know, they stay in there, they have these beautiful uniforms that they wear to school. They like stay in their uniforms and they get embarrassed and they just start staying home. And so like in, in a country like Haiti, a majority of like the household work and the manual labor of like walking miles on end to get water is the women. And because they're no longer in school, and it's literally because they've dropped out because they've started their periods and they're kind of confused. They don't know what's happening. And so it's like those kinds of experiences to me, it's like, if, if I, you know, like, I mean, obviously I'm a woman and I have a sister. And so like, we talked about it with my parents, but like we didn't talk about it in the world of sports. And I think it should be talked about just in general. And then moving into kind of obviously this, the sports world, it's like, well, how we're going to talk about it now. Yeah. And that was kind of my next, my next question. Just remembering when you first got your, when you first got your first period, like I remember it was kind of like scary, but I was like kind of waiting for it to happen. Like my friends and I were talking about it. Like I had a friend who distinctly like lied about getting her period because she thought it was really cool. Like, so I, I had some weird friends, I guess, in which they were like, yeah, like I got it first. I'm an adult type of thing. Like it was like celebrated amongst my friend group a little bit more than I think maybe in other places. I don't know what our parents did to evoke this in us, but I'd like, I distinctly remember getting my period. I was probably in like seventh or eighth grade. So like very normal, like 12 ish, I want to say. And I remember like distinctly being horrified about the idea of tampons, like 
how do you use it? How do you like, how do you use a tampon applicator? Like, how does it go in? Like, this was like too much for my 12 year old brain to handle. And I don't think I even told my mom when I first got my period, I think she just like probably found it and might like found, you know, bloody underwear in my laundry or something as a, as a, like as a 12 year old. And she was like, Corinne, we got to talk about this. Um, but I'm an avoider when things make me uncomfortable. So I avoided it for sure. And I'm just wondering, you know, what that was like, if you guys remember that or it's kind of wondering what that looked like and then how did that spur you know like i think both of those stories might overlap with athletics a bit so kind of just take us through that um so yeah um so i was a bit later so i actually didn't get my first period till i was 16 and i think it was because it was very um i don't know again throughout this episode, we're going to figure out that every person is different. Of course I have theories, but it could be different for someone else. Yeah. 11, was, 11 to 16 is like the pretty, is like a fairly normal range. It's when right. get older than 16 though. I think we start to worry more medically. Yeah. Oh, I think it's older than 15 even, but, um, but like, but yeah, so mine was a bit later. Like all of my friends were like, were, you know, like the, starting and I was just kind of like, Oh, what's happening? But I was a very active kid. So maybe that was it. But I remember when I first started my period, um, I actually never really had a normal cycle. It's kind of like every three months or so. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I was, I was embarrassed, but like, yeah, like I, of course I had this like idea of like what happens when you have your period. I thought I would just, there's no one talk to me about it. Like, I mean, don't talk to me about like that. They're like, oh, you started your period. I assume it was just like gushing, like some sort of like, like, I'm sorry, but like, that's what so I you thought. You built it up. You built it up in your I head did. to do this crazy I thing. Did. And I was like, what am I going to get lightheaded? Like, what do I, what do I do? I'm going to lose so much blood. But like, anyways, it was fine. I was fine. Um, and then but yeah, I mean, I was a junior in high school when it happened. So I was definitely a late bloomer. Yeah, I was a late bloomer too. So I feel like I got it once it was already cool for my friends to have it. And so then I was the uncool one again, cause I was so late, but uh, <laughs> it was never this like badge of honor when I was growing up cause I didn't run. So whenever I talked about it with friends, like we all were okay with having it. It was not, I was never in a culture where my friends didn't get it because of athletics and so I think what, what really prompted us to want to do this episode, right. Is that like the menstrual cycle, especially in relation to running, it has a lot of importance. And I kind of saw this firsthand when I went to college and I first started getting into running, running with the club cross country team at Penn state. Um, I think I was like the first or second run I went on with this group of older girls and they were talking about not getting their period. And I kind of said something around getting mine. And they just gave me the stink eye and were like, you still get your period. Like we don't like, you're not training hard enough. And so from that point on, I kind of made it my goal to, to not get it. Right. Because in my mind, I was like, okay, well, I'm doing this new sport. I'm a perfectionist and I want to be good at it. And if these girls who are at the time, my elders and the girls that I, the only girls I knew in the sport. And so I kind of looked up to them, aren't getting their periods, then, then I shouldn't get mine either. And so, you know, you get to a point where you're training hard enough and you, you miss your period. And for a while I, I wore that as a badge of honor and I was pretty excited about it and felt like that was proving to myself that I was training hard enough. Um, but as we all know, that's not a good sign, right? Like we're not supposed to train so hard that we stop getting our menstrual cycle. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like that's another big reason where, why I kind of wanted to touch on this topic, um, is to really just talk about why we should get it. Yeah. And there's some, like, there's some menstrual abnormalities as, as, um, you know, most people who get their period, we call them like eumenorrhea 
get a normal period. And then we've got kind of various menstrual abnormalities. I think the two, the two big ones really are oligo, oligomenorrhea, right? And that's that inconsistent period. Um, I think it's really common, particularly in people who get their periods a little bit later. Um, but basically it's less than six to eight a year, um, or menstrual cycles that last longer than 35 days. And we'll talk about menstrual cycle length and, and parts of this uh, parts of your cycle here in a little bit, but that's kind of, that's, that's one camp, right? So maybe you're getting a period every three months type of thing, kind of being on the lookout for that. And then as Hilly mentioned, primary amenorrhea. So an individual that does not have their period by age 15, primary, primary amenorrhea, and then secondary amenorrhea, right. Would be the thing that we're all kind of, I think most worried about here, right. It's the, someone who's had a regular period before and they're not, and their period stops for more than three months or someone who's got an inconsistent period who I've got friends who are, you know, healthy adults who have inconsistent periods. But if you lose your period for more than six months, would consider that secondary amenorrhea. And the big risk there, right, is, is REDS or red S relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, but there could be other underlying um, conditions. And so whenever anything like this is happening, we want you to consult with your primary care provider, your OB-GYN, whoever you have in your corner for your healthcare, because it's not always straightforward. But that's like, Hill, or uh, not Hilly, Keely, you said like, oh, training so hard that you lose your period. And there was this idea for the longest time that like, if your body fat is below X, Y, or Z, you stop menstruating. And that's not, that doesn't really seem to be the case. It really seems to be like linked to an energy imbalance. And so we see, so basically if you're restricting calories to the point that you're not meeting your energy needs, you're at risk for becoming amenorrheic. And I think that's where we're, what we're seeing most commonly in our sport is that you're just not meeting your energy needs. And this is your body's like warning system, which is so important, right? Like, I think that's how we all think about it. Is that how you guys have been thinking about it? As far as like, it's your warning system that your body's under stress. Totally. I mean, I think even, even for that, like, right. Secondary amenorrhea. Um, I mean, I experienced that when I had my, my accident and my body was like, I mean, I had broken so many bones and it was like healing. And then it just kind of like stopped. I think that's from like an energy perspective of like kind of conserving energy and like my body being like, you are not fit to bear a child at this moment. My, so. my energy must go elsewhere. must feel <laughs> Exactly. Bones. Right. But I wasn't really, I wasn't training at that point. I was just recovering. Right. So, um, but still that has implications for, you know, later on with, um, with bones in particular. Right. Um, I mean, estrogen plays a huge role in, in, in like in maintaining bone density and, and health. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, but again, it's like using it as that warning system. We can talk about this too, with like birth control if you, if you want, but, um, yeah. And we're of. not today where I think we're not, I think there's so much, we do have some good research on birth control right. methods and we're getting better research on it. So I think we're actually going to stick that in its own episode or an episode with some other stuff. So we're not going to get into the weeds today. For those of you wondering about birth control, birth control methods, or like perimenopause or menopausal women, because that deserves its own thing. So today we're mm -hmm. just going to talk about kind of menstrual cycle basics more than right. anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which are hairy enough, right? Because I feel like even trying to generalize the menstrual cycle is pretty hard because even just looking through all of our notes, Corinne, and, and diving through a bunch of different papers, like even just trying to tell people what an average range is for their cycle in terms of how long it should be in days, the range is massive. I see everything from 17 to 38 days. So 
we don't know. But anyways, that's kind of the theme of today is like, we really want to just talk to you guys about what a traditional menstrual cycle is, why we should know what happens during it, and then how we can kind of think about it in relation to training and racing, um, and really just emphasize how individualized it's going to be for everybody. Yeah. And most charts you'll see, right. You're like, and I, I have taken to saying the idealized menstrual cycle, because that's what it is. When you see it in the literature, when I wrote about it for Jason Coop's book, when we talk about it here, when we show graphs at talks or, you know, in educational settings, it's always the idealized period or the idealized menstrual cycle, i.e. we're going to say it's 28 days. And therefore this phase is this long and this phase is that long. And the truth of the matter is like, not only does it seem to that not to be the case woman to woman or person that menstruates to person that menstruates, that's also not the case for you, like period to period, right? Like there's, there's flux there and you, you pick up on that flux a little bit when you are looking at things. Like I recently traveled internationally and I was gone for a month. And when I'm gone for that long internationally, I've got that circadian rhythm flip-flop. And like, for me, like my cycle gets all sorts of messed up for a second and then it like resets. And so you're going to have that cycle to cycle variation as well. But I think the biggest thing to start with is just kind of like, let's get to basics, right? Like what are the phases of an idealized menstrual cycle and kind of what, what do those things entail? And then we can kind of talk about how we might experience them. Yeah, totally. And we'll just kind of go with this 28 day ideal cycle. Right. But, but what I want you all to think about in terms of when that cycle starts is when you first have your full day of bleeding. And so we'll say that the menstrual cycle starts on that day, that's day one, and it continues until your next start of bleed. So we'll go through a full cycle and that'll be one full menstrual cycle. So you start bleeding, you'll stop bleeding. You'll go all the way to when you start bleeding again, and that's going to be the cycle. And so we can kind of bucket it into four buckets, right? So that, that bleeding phase is typically called menstruation. And that'll be when you start bleeding to when you stop bleeding. That's pretty simple. And that's kind of lumped into this bigger phase that's called the follicular phase. And that's traditionally the first half of your cycle. And a lot of textbooks like to say it's between 10 and 14 days for those 28 day traditional textbook style uh, menstrual cycles. But again, that's going to be variable for everybody. But this follicular phase is really defined by a lower level of circulating sex hormones, traditionally estrogen and progesterone, um, while your body is kind of getting ready for ovulation. And so during this phase, those estrogen and progesterones are low. However, your pituitary gland is still making FSH, which tells your ovaries to kind of prepare an egg for fertilization. And so when that happens, you'll, tri- you'll kind of go into this new phase that's called, called an ovulatory phase. I was just going to say, it's really important to remember. It's really, it's, I think this is really cool because it's important to remember that you don't just menstruate to mess up your life. You menstruate because your body's trying to do something that's like kind of important, like bring new life into the world. So it's kind of like, ugh, I don't want a baby right now, but it's nice to know that like your body has been practicing this every month for a reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Keely spent a lot of time looking at hormone profiles. So in a past life. So this is, she knows, she knows a lot about all this stuff and we feel very fortunate to have her brain amongst us. But that next phase, it's a shorty. It's your ovulatory phase. Um, It lasts, once again, textbook here. It lasts 16 to 32 hours. Um, And this is when you've got increasing estrogen, which causes LH or luteinizing hormone to spike 
And this is actually what releases an egg and prepares your body for pregnancy. Yay, eggs, right? It's got to like football it out of the ovary and through your fallopian tubes. Okay, which is how I how I picture my ovary doing it every month is like football throwing it at my fallopian tubes, which is probably why some people actually experience pain and cramping when they release an egg. Like I've heard women say, oh, I know when I release an egg, like I feel it. And that's mm-hmm. me picturing their ovary just footballing it at their fallopian tubes. But um, that is your ovulatory phase. And then we move in to kind of what a lot of people consider the last phase of your period. And that's your luteal phase. So this lasts about 10 to 14 days. Um, and so this is where you kind of, you start to shift for your, your hormone levels. There's higher levels in progesterone. And that starts being released in kind of that pulsatile fashion um, to build up the the corpus um, luteum, which is basically the thickening of uh, the lining in your uterus. This is what can prepare for fertilization of the egg in case of pregnancy, like what that egg can stick to. Um, And then also what's happening in this luteal phase is the oestrogen and progesterone will slowly fall when fertilization does not occur. And the little phase ends and the body prepares to shed the lining. And then that's day one of your period where you start the bleeding phase. Yeah. Aren't bodies cool, right? Really it's like, cool. we're going to make a baby. And then your body's like, no, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> and they're like, get rid of all this material we've been building. Get it out now. We're renovating. Uh, like, I don't know. I we're like kind of mean. Idea. We're mean to, in that sense to... No, but it is, it is amazing. And this is, this is what's so important to talk about. Like this is happening in our body every single month. And this is just normal. This is like what makes, you know, women different, right. Um, than, than men, but it's, it's, it's a normal thing. It's something that it's, it's just, yeah. So why should it just be like a normal thing that we talk about? Yeah. And then I think the kind of important thing to note there, right. Like, cause most of you are listening to this probably without any visual aids, mm-hmm. which is really hard. If you need a visual aid, just Google, Google search. That's <laughs> just cycle. But for those of you, life. but for those of you on YouTube, just look at the YouTube video because we'll yeah, just look at the screen. A nice picture. We're showing you a picture <laughs> right now. But what you'll notice, right, is that you've got these kind of like phases of those hormone shifts, right? When you when you start menstruating, and I'm using a lot of hand gestures here for people who cannot see us, um, where you've got kind of low estrogen and progesterone, and then after ovulation kind of things start to spike back up again. So it's interesting because you'd think, okay, we've got these hormones circulating what do those hormones do and how do they make us feel or do they make us feel things? Like, I think that's kind of the interesting component of what's going on here and what creates so much individual variability. Totally. Yeah. And I think as you learn about the menstrual cycle, you know that you have LH surges because of estrogen and then you release the egg because of that LH surge. And then as that is there, then the estrogen and progesterone start start elevating and then progesterone dips when you're not pregnant, which then triggers the corpus luteum to shed. And then you start bleeding again. And so they're all interrelated, right? And so all of these hormones are changing and they're influencing one another. And so it's going to be normal for you to have different feelings throughout your menstrual cycle, because these hormones are changing a lot. Um, And it's kind of interesting because when you ask women, if they feel different when they're training during their period, the majority of women say that they do feel like they perform less good during their menstruation phase of their cycle. And again, this could be just because of symptoms, because we also see an increase in symptoms during the menstruation phase, typically associated with cramps and all sorts of stuff um, that you feel when you're actually shedding that, that lining and, and bleeding. Um, 
But the the other side of that coin is that we've also found that exercise helps women during that phase. And so we're kind of at this crossroads, right, where our menstrual cycle does make us feel different throughout the month. But we do know that exercise can help us feel a little bit better during those types of the months as well. And so we're going to kind of just dive into into like how all of those hormones can kind of impact us during our our exercise endeavors. Yeah. I think there's some fun, like fun. There's some fun research. There's some, there's some interesting research. And a lot of the research I feel like is kind of like, well, we don't know, or we don't know enough or the research or the research criticism is like, well, this needs to be organized better, or we need to tweak this. And there's some really, really good female driven teams right now that are working on this, um, which is really exciting. I think it's a very exciting time for female athletics again, because of things like this happening. And a lot of the studies are kind of like, well, there's a graph that Keely and I are obsessed with where it's basically like you can perform on any day and you can have a terrible day on any day. And that's kind of exciting, right? Knowing that you can do that. But I'm wondering, you know, from, from the sciencey side of things, and maybe it's some of these things are solid and maybe some of these things are not as solid. Like what do we know these hormones could do to different, you know, components of training and performance? I think that's the best way to phrase it. And then we can mm-hmm. talk about kind of how do we feel those things? Have you noticed those things in training? We'll kind of move into that next. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm pretty biased because I really feel like a klutz during a certain part of my <laughs> cycle, especially if I'm mountain biking. And so I really am biased to this one um, bullet point. But when we look at like strength or performance, we do know that progesterone has has impacts on the inhibitory pathways in the brain, which could lead to decreased fine motor control or like task specific training. So like something like mountain biking would be more fine motor control. Um, um, And we know that actually increased estrogen, which is high during the luteal phase, could actually decrease your gross motor skill output. And so there are going to be times during the, the cycle where you feel a little more like a baby giraffe Um, and then there's going to be times where you actually feel more like a rock star. Um, and there's been a couple studies, again, caveat here, couple that show that you have better gross motor skills and increased capacity for strength and work right after your ovulatory phase. Um, but again, very few number of studies, and I'm really excited to see where the research goes with this, but I think the biggest takeaway here is that give yourself some grace. Again, I think we're going to say this a lot. If you're feeling pretty out of it and keep twisting your ankle or, or falling off your mountain bike during a ride or a run, give yourself some grace that your hormones might just be a little off that day and to maybe go focus on something else. Yeah. And I think we're, we're going to talk more about tracking later, but this this is why tracking can be important, right? Because you're learning about you. Like it's not so much the broad recommendations that are important. It's the, you're learning about you. And we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more in a second. But then I guess the next big, we've gotten questions about this actually, I think in our DMs way back when we first started, this was, you know, about fueling and hydration strategies. Cause they're, you know, like what, what does that look like? You know, hormones must influence that, right. You know, water retention, electrolytes, carbohydrate needs, like what does that look like from what we know about these hormones and how they could impact both, you know, fluid, fluid needs and like metabolism? Yeah. Well, I think what's a bummer for females is that there's been some studies that show that we are already at a little bit of a higher risk for something like hyponatremia than our male counterparts just due to our body size. And so this has actually um, led to more studies in this field than other fields of around female sex hormones, because we'd, we'd saw that we had differences um, before we even looked into the hormones. 
Um, and so we have looked into how hormones play a role in salt retention, water, or sorry, sodium absorption and water retention. And we have seen that during the luteal phase, we can have impaired sodium reabsorption in the kidneys, which can impact fluid balance and typically will result in a decreased plasma volume. And this is just something to be cognizant of during really long or really hot races because lower plasma volume can be super disadvantageous in really hot environments. And so it's just really important to be mindful of when you're racing because you're going to have a race during your luteal phase. You're going to have a race during your follicular phase. And you really want to stay on top of those hydration needs and those salt needs, especially with those differences in how your body is reabsorbing the sodium as well as retaining water. Yeah. And the best way to do that is practice, right? Practice and training, practice in all these phases and you'll nail it for race day. But what about metabolism? What about the, what about those needs? Mm-hmm. Like, tell me more. Tell me. Yeah. I mean, I think fat metabolism is super buzzworthy right now. Um, people love to say that females need to increase their ability to fat oxidize or females already can fat oxidize. And I think there's just so much confusion around it. Um, but I think we do know that females in general do have a little bit of an improved fat metabolism compared to our male counterparts. And that's mostly in part to estrogen, um, with increases in our fat metabolism. And, um, This is typically noticed the most in our luteal phase. And what I find the most um, interesting in this is that a lot of these effects can be worsened during fasted. And so a lot of the research shows that fasting is not great for females because it could actually worsen our ability to utilize carbohydrates. Um, Whereas a lot of the buzzworthy like articles that were released were telling females to try to do a lot of fasted training. And so I think the biggest takeaway here is that we do have an increased ability to oxidize fat. We will have an, a part in our cycle during the luteal phase where we are not utilizing carbohydrates to our best ability. And so we can really compensate for that by ingesting carbohydrates during our workout um, and not fasting. <laughs> yeah. And that ties directly into, I think, kind of how recovery is like could be impaired or is, or, or is heightened during one phase versus impaired. In another, I think probably has direct ties to that, you know, in particular, like carbohydrate consumption and carbohydrate oxidation. Mm-hmm. I'm not totally. sure. Yeah. I mean, so during the luteal phase, because we are more kind of catabolic in the carbohydrate realm, we also are catabolic in the protein realm. And so we really need to focus on post-exercise protein carbohydrate supplementation to make sure that we're really like helping our recovery game. And that'll be something we talk about too when we talk about menopause in a later episode, right? Is is hormones have a great like obviously have a huge impact here. And while whilst we all have hormones circulating and doing crazy stuff every month, that change that ha- that comes with, with perimenopause and menopause has a big impact. And, and one of the best ways to combat it is kind of in this, oftentimes is in a nutritional approach. So we'll talk about that more in, in an upcoming episode, but I think it's so interesting. And then sleep's impacted. I don't know about you, Keely. I think, I mean, we're about to talk about this anyway. Like I get, I have a noticeable temperature change. <laughs> Mm-hmm. ahead of like ahead of, of ahead of like getting my period and so i imagine that that has a great like has to imp- i mean i think it impacts my sleep quality right like if i'm if i'm getting like really way too hot in the middle of the night and sweating buckets that that makes mm-hmm. sleep a little bit more uncomfortable during my graduate studies i helped um a fellow classmate of mine work on jacket design at lululemon and you know, we were, we were designing jackets for women and we were really, you know, like what we were doing was temperature research. 
And initially, you know, we've got a male PI that was in charge of like half the project and he didn't really care if we took into account menstruation. And we were like, okay, let's like hold the phone, like pause. I am, my temperature like varies quite a bit from baseline during, you know, during this phase, like we need, we need to account for this if we are going to look at temperature response to these different jacket materials. And so Mm -hmm. I do think it's like, it's very interesting how it's not always picked up in the research. It's not always picked up in, in, um, you know, I don't know, not all men, but I just like watching these brains work of not wanting to take this into account while doing a women, like a, a single gender study was hilarious. And we like, yeah, I don't know. We the, totally. the the PI in the lab was was in in the Lululemon lab was female, and she was like, "No, no, no, this is how we're doing it." So it was it was good to have that mentor on board. But yeah, it th- these are reasons why you know these studies that single 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 sex studies using participants who menstruate or who have circulating fluctuating hormone levels. It's like it's so important to kind of I think broaden the time scale on these studies so that we can take into account individual variation and between subject variation for this very reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I actually have one more thing to add about body temperature. Um, In one of my past studies, we actually saw that women during the luteal phase would choose a warmer top to start, but then they would be significantly more dissatisfied with their apparel choice (laughs) after their run. Um, which makes sense, right? Because I feel like I'm typically feeling cold, like at least during the day, but then your core temp is elevated. So as soon as you start exercising, you're just like, oh, I'm too hot. Yeah. The, that's that threshold, right? That mm-hmm. threshold to, mm-hmm. to the, the core versus skin temp is, yep. is decreased just like you would be in the heat. So mm-hmm. yeah. So hilarious. really interesting, <laughs> man, we like, we can outsmart ourselves on that one. <laughs> a little bit, but I think the biggest takeaway from all this, right, is that we're, we've talked a lot about an idealized cycle here. We do know that whilst, whilst that's not a word I use all the time, um, hormones do have an impact on all these various things. It's going to impact everyone differently. You may or may not feel some of these things. You may feel all these things. You, you might feel like, you know, the exact opposite about your cycle. And it's just important to remember that like, They've done studies on this too, where it's like the the graph. Uh, Keely will have we're, to share. We're going to show or, it. Share, or we're sharing the graph. <laughs> yes. Okay. This is our favorite graph in the whole world. I think it's my favorite graph in the whole world. It's from a yeah. 2021 study in Frontiers of Physiology from a paper entitled "Influence of Menstrual Cycle or Hormonal Contraceptive Phase on Physiological Variables Monitored During Treadmill Testing." What a sexy article. <laughs> um, but essentially, this is I think I think it's the second. Um, graph in the paper, but basically it's looking at people on doing this treadmill test at different phases of their menstrual cycle. People are performing on, on every phase possible. People are not performing on every phase possible. So it just like people saw this and the takeaway was, well, there's just no impact of the menstrual cycle on performance. And we all saw this, all three of us saw this and said, no, no, no there's a huge impact and it's highly individual. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely my favorite graph because we can take the mean of a, of a ton of different responses and get close to zero. zero. <laughs> <laughs> but if you actually look at the the answers, that's where the, the magic lies, I think, is because it would be really cool to take those women who are showing upwards of 30% differences across different phases 
in the opposite directions and see what the difference is, right? Because this, this study, unfortunately, did not do hormonal profiling. So we don't know their actual ratio of hormones during these phases. This is another issue with menstrual cycle testing right now is that it's really expensive to do full hormonal profiling on all of your, all of your subjects. Um, and, and, and you'd need to do it for like two or three cycles to even get trends for the same person. And so again, this is a very hairy topic, but I think coming out with papers that say there's no impact when you can see there's just so much variability is, is a little tough, but also cool for us because this is the field that we're interested in and, and there's just a lot more science to be had. (laughs) Yeah. And that's been like the takeaway statement for many of these researchers Mm -hmm. is literally like a personalized approach needs to be taken on each individual's response to exercise performance when it comes to menstruation. So I think that that's like, that is our take home message, which is not very exciting in a way, but I think maybe it is the most exciting. So, um, okay. Let's talk a little bit about how we feel about our periods. What, what do you guys notice? What are big, like big things that you think from paying attention to your cycle from cycle to cycle that you're like, this happens almost every time this or that happens almost every time. Like what are things that you've started to pay attention to? And maybe you've even tweaked training around in order to accommodate it. Yeah. So the biggest thing, and I think I've actually, I think maybe back a few episodes ago, several episodes ago, as we had like a society slam around, or maybe a question around like GI issues surrounding um, your period. I definitely experienced that um, like 48 hours to 72 hours before. Um, so yeah, I mean, Corinne, yeah, Corinne, I, I, I like don't want to race like when that happens because <laughs> it's just uh, it's it, it's not fun. Um, yeah, worst that's worst case scenario for me is like four, it's like seventy two hours before to like day one. Yeah, I've raced mm-hmm. on day one a bunch of my period, and it's like mm, there's not enough bushes on the Black Canyon course <laughs> to cover up that. Yeah, so it's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. The drop in progesterone Mm -hmm. decreases your water absorption. So typically Mm -hmm. you have to pee or maybe go number two a lot more (laughs) during those like first couple days of your period or right before your period when those levels are dropping off, which that was going to be mine. It's like I could go pee and go out for a run. And within the first five minutes of my run, I'm like, oh, got to pee again. (laughs) Gosh, darn it. Kidneys do your job. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I also, I think my biggest emotional where there's like a mental health component here. And I think I, I feel it for sure. in that like 72 hour window before I get my period, it's like, I'm, I am a sadder human. I have less patience for my significant other and the other people in my life. I really silly things make me cry for no real reason. I have sat on rocks in the middle of runs and cried. Um, I don't want anything to touch my body, generally speaking, during that phase. I've gone from like really loving myself to being like convinced that I'm like morbidly obese in the span of like six minutes, which is like not a thing that like I've had to rationalize my way through this since being a teenager, being like, it's impossible to gain weight in a day. You're fine. Like you, you loved your body yesterday. You're going to love your body again in four days. Just give this time to pass. But you know, like that's a really real feeling and it's horrible, right? Like it's horrible to feel that way about yourself. And then you get your period and you're like, oh, right. I remember you like this happened last month too. So I think it's like, we've all, we all have those moments. Right. But I race, I'll race on day two of my period. Yeah. Any day. I totally agree. And just like, it's so funny because it's like, sometimes, I mean, I'm a very impatient person generally, 
maybe both of you can admit to admit to witnessing this. But however, I notice that like sometimes like just little things just start to irk me and I'm like hyper, just impatient. And I'm just, this is an indication to me that I'm like, oh, all right, let's get ready. The other thing is like also, um, yeah, like ankles are like fun, kind of like feeling like a klutz, but that's obviously further out. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely have the same exact feelings. And there'll be some runs where I also want to stop and cry. And then I think that's why I like tracking my cycle. We'll kind of pivot to this now Let's because pivot to it reminds proactive me, thing. Yeah, it reminds me that like, oh, okay, I'm at that phase where I actually kind of in a, I'm kind of an asshole. So, <laughs> so it's okay. This is always normal. Like cut yourself some slack. It might not feel great to run today. You might have a little less patience for your significant other today. Like try to remember that this is a couple day period every, you know, 30, whatever days. Um, but I mean, that's why I love tracking it. And I think that's what happens with a lot of athletes. And one of the things that I love to talk about um, when we do talk about the menstrual cycle and how people have implemented it is the 2019 uh, Team USA for the Women's Soccer World Cup because they worked with Georgie Brunevals and a couple other physiologists. Fitter was Fitter the app Fitter to track their menstrual cycle, and they didn't do any personalized tailoring of their workouts to their menstrual cycle. However, they were told a lot about the different parts of the menstrual cycle. They were told about how the menstrual cycle could impact how they're feeling during training. And they were given the grace to alter their training based off how they feel, as well as just accept how they were feeling and know that it was normal. And they attributed their success at the world cup to that alteration in their training and in their mindset. And I think that is just awesome. And that is why I think tracking your menstrual cycle is so important is because it's giving us the grace to accept how we feel that day and to acknowledge that this is our normal bodily function. And we need to appreciate that we have our menstrual cycle. And if that means I feel like crap today and I want to cry while I'm running, that is okay. And I like that it wasn't necessarily like a, a huge, it was like, I think you described it as like a knowledge intervention, as opposed to like an intervention where they were like, okay, when you're in this phase, we're decreasing X and we're increasing Y. It was like, no, no, no. We're just going to tell you about what's happening. And that is hugely impactful, right? Like I, like to me, that's the standout of a study like that, or of, of publicity like that was that it's a knowledge intervention, just like having the, like knowledge is power, right? We know that. And so it's like tracking your cycle, using even a basic app, using you, even using like a pen and paper. Right. And like, just like, or, you know, I make a note in training peaks for myself type of thing. Like that stuff can be super impactful and just giving yourself, cutting yourself some slack, um, during, during that phase every month. So I think that was a really interesting thing, just a knowledge intervention. Yeah. Because I mean, just based off of all of the hormones we talked about, there's not a one size fits all, right? There's never going to be this perfect prescription for every single female to follow when they're in their luteal phase versus the follicular phase. So I think just acknowledging when your phases happen and how you feel, that's going to be a really good step. Um, one thing that I've done because I'm a super nerd um, is take ovulation tests, not because I'm trying to get pregnant, but just to see when I actually do have an ovulation phase. Because when Corinne talked about it earlier, it is a very short window. But knowing that window, at least what I found in my previous research, really increases your ability to predict at least the follicular and the luteal phase. Because what we were saying before is like the textbook cycle is 28 days, but your follicular phase is not 14 and luteal is 14, not in everybody, right? So some people have a shortened follicular phase and a longer luteal phase and vice versa. So for me, it's just, 
again, then another piece of information that I could add to my training log so that I can just know a, that I'm ovulating so that I am having an ovulatory cycle. Um, and also that I can break it up into my phases just a little bit more accurately than I had in the past. Um, and just notice more trends for myself. Yeah. And that's not a, that's not a super expensive intervention mm-hmm. by any means, right? Like people do this all the time when they're trying to get pregnant. So that is super interesting. And then I made a note in, in our kind of our overview here too, of like, that'd be a very interesting way for one of the, one, once again, we're not going to talk about this in at length, but one of the risks of using like a hormonal IUD is that whilst you may no longer bleed, you may, like, because the, you, you don't have a uterine lining building up, you might still be ovulating. And the goal, like the goal is that you're hopefully still ovulating. And so that'd be a very interesting thing for people who maybe are worried or like who maybe are no longer bleeding because they're on a progesterone based IUD who might still be getting, who, who should still be ovulating. So that would be a very curious, a curious like tool to use in that space. That's cheap and readily available. I'm curious about that. I'm adding it to my list. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely recommend it. Basically like if you can't get a full hormonal profile on yourself Mm -hmm. for five months, which you don't want to pay for that. It's like $500 each one. Uh, Ovulation test definitely helps compared to no ovulation test. So. Yeah. And then I think, you know, this is kind of a plug for uh, people who have been a a huge support for us. Yeah. Mine's on my charger which is, I don't have to charge it very often, but mine is, mine is there is Aura Ring. Aura Ring has been supporting us um, this year, which is really exciting. Um, and along with any paper method of tracking or fitter or anything like that, um, Aura has been a really cool way to track our cycles. Um, I know Keely and I both have notes in here about that. And I'm wondering just if you guys have, what have you found while using your Aura Ring as far as like predictability of your period, any of that kind of stuff that you pulled out from, from your time wearing it? Yeah. I mean, mine is usually within, um, 72 hours. I mean, and it's been, you know, since, since I've been, forget how many months we've been wearing this now. Um, it's, it's, it, but it's, it's actually pretty accurate. And of course that's with like the body temperature that it's tracking. So, but the one exception that I had, um, after gorges. And so like Keely, you mentioned, you know, like every phase for a woman can be different, right. From woman to woman. But I also think like, like it as month just to like month. My, month to month, exactly. Like there's so much, there's so much variability in it because after the gorge 100 K there was just like extra life stress and all this other stuff that, you know, I had, I had my period again, like two weeks later. So, you know, then, so that was the one exception that, that didn't really predict it correctly. I was very surprised. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> other than that, it's actually been a really good tracking tool. Cause like, I mean, for me, I travel a lot. And so it's like, like, what do I need to bring with me? If I'm going to like go on a weekend trip, like I can like pull up the calendar and be like, do hey, I need tampons? Exactly. Or, you know, diva cups or whatever, like all that good stuff. Like I, I, it's, it's, it's part of planning. So, um, yeah, it's actually been really, really nice to have, to have that kind of predictability be accurate. Mm-hmm. What about you, Keely? Yeah. I mean, mine definitely predicting within like one or two days now, which is pretty cool. Um, and it always shows my trend of body temperature being really heightened, um, kind of at my peak aggravated and kind of asshole self phase. So it's a good reminder, typically when I look at the app, (laughs) uh, typically feeling not great and see those really high trends of my body temp. I'm like, okay, this is my phase. Is it COVID or am I about to get my period? Or is it Western States? Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. So I, I really love my aura ring. I can't say enough good things. I think it, it really is just really knowledge is power in this sense, especially when we're dealing with our cycles um, and how individual they are, that something can actually learn how your cycle reacts. So and it's about to become it's so there's this really interesting research project. I think they got approved for a clinical trial. Um, it was between, I think like UC San Diego and maybe UC Berkeley with Aura Ring, and they used it to ac- accurately predict pregnancy ahead of an at-home pregnancy test. Oh, really? Um, and it has to do with body temperature and body yeah. temperature trends. Um, and there's some HRV stuff that goes along with that. And it was accurate enough that it's been approved for a clinical trial, which mm. is cool, right? Sure, like it's, it's really very cool. cool that it's that, that like that information is that good, but it also it's cool in the day and age that we are living in knowledge truly is power, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, like knowing, knowing accurately, like well ahead of at home, it's like a week ahead of an at home pregnancy test. Like that's very early mm-hmm. knowledge into that. Um, is, is kind of powerful for women to have, like to have ownership over your own health and your own body. So, um, that's just, I love it. I love where the science is going and how like a very simple wearable technology, um, is allowing us to do some cool things, um, and keep track of some cool things. So I think that's, those are my big takeaways with the aura ring that the clinical study that like jumped out at me in a big way. And I thought that was very, very cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so Shall our we? ring, we go to slam. Let's slam once again, as we just mentioned, um, society slam is brought to you by our friends over at aura ring. We've had a blast wearing the rings and hopefully they'll continue to let us wear the rings next year as well. Um, but Keely, I think you've got some exciting, exciting slamming. Will you tell us about it? Yeah. So I have been in contact with a woman who works at central Washington university. I was actually gonna, um, do a master's with her in nutrition uh, before someone talked me off the ledge of doing too much again. So I decided to just help her with some research, <laughs> but uh, she's kicking off a study with my help on basically exercise dependence in trail runners in relation to fueling practices and relative energy deficiency risk. And so we're kind of kicking that study off next week, or by the time this launches, it'll have launched. And so I hope that any female or male trail runner listening to this podcast will take that survey because it's kind of shaping up a lot of data so that we can do a couple of cool studies we have planned in the pipeline for the future. So that's so sweet. We'll share it in show notes and share it all over our social media um, feeds so that people who want to get involved in that study can, because that's very cool. We need everyone to take part in research studies. They're super important so that we can learn more information about these very important topics in relation to our sport specifically. Kelly, what do you got? Yeah, so I got a DM from Catherine and she just had a question for us. She loves the podcast um, and she says, keep up the excellent work. So, um, but she had one question um, for us. So kind of get both of your takes on it. So athletes who don't live in a hilly mountainous area or at altitude, um, she's wondering about some, just some things that she can do um, to help her kind of train for these races, just a goal of finishing. Um, She lives in Southern Louisiana and she's determined to train for races with elevation gain that she can't replicate at home that's so exciting yeah um my rule of thumb i'll jump in first so that no one can take my idea um (laughs) my rule of thumb with all my athletes um i've got like texans training for utmb and all that kind of stuff so people people run in flat areas and train for really really hilly races and my rule of thumb is 
what matters the most is that we get you to the start line as fit as possible, Mm -hmm. as strong as possible, and as healthy as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it can be daunting to see that elevation gain and feel like you can't prepare for it adequately. And that specificity part can be really important, but if you're as fit as possible, as strong as possible, and as healthy as possible, that goes a long, long way. So I lean into that over getting scared that you mm-hmm. can't train appropriately where you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's very, very well said. And that's kind of what I was going to say, but then two other things I've, I've implemented recently. One um, is a lot of eccentric quad loading for very, very strenuous downhill races. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be with really heavy weights, um, eccentric kind of deadlifts or eccentric, um, sorry, eccentric squats. Um, or it could even be with like resistant bands. So it doesn't have to be with, with weights if you don't have those. Um, and then the second thing is, I think a lot of people do live in flat areas, but I've had a couple of my athletes make a field trip just for one really big stimulus enhancing run. And so it might not need to be a a field trip every weekend, but I could say there's going to be benefit just from having one big stimulus um, Mm -hmm. that really increases like your body's ability to feel comfortable at that, that race. So it should have a lot of ups and downs in that stimulus. Um, And I think that will just help physically and mentally. Yeah. Little training, little weekend training camp. Most people can make that, make that happen. Right. Yeah. You guys took my answer. So this is perfect. I I thought it was going to be similar to that. So yeah. (laughs) For the question. Yeah. Hopefully that helps keep your questions coming. My society slam is I've gotten some great shout outs from people, um, from the Midwest. We're all West coast centric humans. We live out here and I think racing can feel very West coast centric, particularly in the U S and I just want to say Midwest we see you. We haven't forgotten about you. We know that you all have historic races and many of them are coming up right around the corner. Um, old classic races like ice age trail 50. I think will have just happened when this comes out, the Minnesota Voyager 50 mile race up in superior, kind of like the superior Duluth zone. Um, that trail is gnarly and they host races there in the fall as well. And then Kettle Moraine 100 mile is in June, just around the corner. So we see you Midwest. We know that you guys are throwing down and you have very important races coming up. So just wanted to give y'all a shout out because I know it can, the whole, the whole trail community can feel a little West coast centric at times. So we see you. (laughs) I think with that note, we'll let y'all go for today, but thank you for joining us once again, please like subscribe i don't know slide into our dms leave us a review that's hopefully generally good um and until next time we'll see you on the trails